Hey y'all, this is Jonathan Martin welcoming you back for another edition of the Zeitcast. So here we go, friends. I feel so delinquent. I spent a week last week with my family in Charlotte and had planned on getting a bunch of new Zeitcast out there, really getting back on the ball, had some awesome conversations worked out, all of this. And then as soon as I got there, came down with a vicious round of strep throat and uh, apparently some other kind of virus or something, knocked me out for an entire week. So I'm so sorry for being so delinquent. Uh, I know I was just talking about putting some more Zeit in the Zeitcast, but for the moment, what I have for you and all I have for you are a couple of new sermons that I felt like could be helpful, at the very least are from my heart. Um, one just here from a couple weeks ago, uh, speaking for some dear friends of mine in Ocala, Florida, um, reflecting on a gospel text that has haunted me for a minute, uh, th- this idea that uh, when Simeon, the old man, holds the child Jesus and says to his mother Mary that a sword will pierce your own soul too. And I think I've just been thinking a lot about how just for a lot of people that I know, I think the Jesus way has been costly. And while it's wonderful, uh, I know a lot of people for whom, I don't know, um, trying to be true to this countercultural way of the kingdom um, has also meant a certain kind of division in their lives. So I hope um, this will feel like a little love letter to you guys who are kind of in that place and feeling that uh, that tension of living in that in-between space had me thinking a bit about one of my mentors, Dr. Ricky Moore, uh, saying that the way that you know the voice of God is always breaks your heart. It kind of goes against your heart in some way. It kind of goes crossways towards your heart. I do think there's something to that, that for all the joy and all the peace and all the beauty, um, there is a sword that pierces us too. So I hope this message will be uh, helpful. I did want to just give a brief plug here that coming up at the table, we're about to host our good friend, Dr. Brad Jerzak, for an event I'm extremely excited about. It's called Unwrathing God. We're going to spend a whole weekend on all the really hard stuff of uh, issues of judgment and hell and atonement. That is going to be in Oklahoma City on March 6th through 7th. And all the uh, all the information is up on the website at thetableokc.com or really through my social media as well, however you want to get there. But we would love for you to join us for what is going to be, I think, a really special weekend with one of our finest theologians and uh, also just one of the more tender, Christ-like, gentle, beautiful people that I know. I feel like every time I've had Brad on, We've had such a special response here. And um, I just think that weekend is really going to be something unique and significant and content you wouldn't hear quite uh, that way anywhere else. So hope some of you guys can join us for that. Thanks so much for hanging around. Thank you for being patient in all the ways that you support us. It's so appreciated. And I hope you enjoy today's edition of the Zeitcast. I want to read a couple texts to you. These are the lectionary texts for today, Um, texts I don't recall preaching from before, but I think are are quite wonderful. If you have your Bibles and or electronic devices, however you do it here, it's all good. Malachi chapter 3 is where we'll go first. Malachi 3 verses 1 through 4. Thus says the Lord, see, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But listen to this. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand 
when he appears. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Footnote here in the Hebrew imagination, there's really no distinction between righteousness and justice. Righteousness is not personal piety. Uh, righteousness is more like what we think of as justice. The mountains are brought low. The valleys are exalted. Things are put to right. That's what righteousness is. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then the gospel text from today, Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. I know that's kind of a lot of verses, but I hope you'll stay present for this because I think this is such a, a beautiful passage. When the time came for their purification, of course, we just had this prophecy about God coming and bring the purifying fire, the refiner's fire. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward, I love this phrase, to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, and I want to especially highlight these, just these couple verses. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray one more time.
God, we thank you for the gift of each other. Thank you for the songs that we've sung. The words that have been spoken over us already. Most of all, for the very real presence of your very real Holy Spirit. Already, you are so richly present with us. We just welcome you, Spirit, and invite you specifically now to teach us, to illuminate your words to us and in us, to allow your word to come to life inside of us. I pray you give me that grace today just to be able to surf a little bit with what you're doing in the room, to lean in where I need to lean in, back off where I need to back off, but just to be so sensitive to where you're moving and how you're moving and what particular people in this space need to hear from you today, because I do believe that you want to address each of your daughters and each of your sons in a way that's just particular and clear. And we need to be addressed by you. We need a word from you. So we just say now, speak, Lord, your sons and daughters are listening. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You know, I know you guys have stools here. I never ever sit when I'm preaching because I am still at heart a Pentecostal preacher with a lot of restless energy. But I feel like sitting, at least for a moment, probably won't last for long. Maybe because of nothing else like the, um, the energy of this little sermon for today is just one of, I don't know, I'm kind of wanting to level with you and, and just, and, and talk from my heart. You know, um, these texts are interesting because they, they hold a certain kind of paradox. Malachi and this beautiful gospel text both contain a lot of hope. Malachi prophesies about how the consolation of Jerusalem, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel is going to come. And yet in the same text, it talks about how the refiner's fire is going to come. And these are not two different realities. These are two sides of the same coin. That the consolation that's coming will also be the purifying fire. The comfort and the refining fire will be the same thing, will be the same reality, will be the same person. And then when we get to our gospel text, and now the consolation has come, the comfort has come, the Messiah has come, with all the hope that Jesus brings. And I mean, the, that whole text is full of hope, isn't it? I mean, there's all this language of, you know, how he's, Jesus as the light for revelation of the Gentiles, the glory to your people Israel. And I love all that. I love the, I've always loved these two figures of Simeon and Anna, these, um, these beautiful old saints who've served faithfully in the temple for years, waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. And now finally in the last stages of their life, Simeon able to physically hold sweet little baby Jesus in his arms and to bless him. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. And yet, I'm so intrigued by this phrase that Simeon blessed them and says to his mother Mary one more time, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Like, isn't that curious that Jesus is comfort and 
consolation and light for Jerusalem, light for Israel, light for the world, and yet also refining fire. Yet also, there's this very real way that Jesus is going to come and bring division. Yet also, there's this way that, and what a word to Mary, the mother of Jesus, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. I'm thinking about that a lot these days. Because, and I really say this not to be like pious. I don't mean this to sound like, you know, uh, sentimental. I think I honestly do love Jesus more than I ever have in my life. I'm more fascinated by Jesus than I've ever been. Last night I got to spend time with a couple of my dear friends, Dr. Chris Green and Robbie Waddell teach at Southeastern University, and we ended up doing a little podcast where we just talked about Jesus. And we got so teary just talking about Jesus. Like, I've never been more intrigued by Jesus. I'm more in love with Jesus. Just the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the simplicity of Jesus. I love Jesus' stories. I, uh, these days, whenever I teach, I mostly want to preach from the Gospels because I just think something about the stories of Jesus. They always transform. They always connect. I just can't get enough Jesus. And yet there's this, there's this thing, you know, that happens because I feel like when you talk a lot about Jesus, when you think a lot about Jesus, when you reflect on Jesus, it would seem like, because we all know Jesus is was so nice, we all know Jesus is so loving, you would think that to talk about Jesus, to focus on Jesus, uh, to, to preach about Jesus, to highlight Jesus, would be to just go around just bringing people together, unifying people, uniting people. Everybody holds hands like, like, just like, and, and I don't, and I feel like more and more that's actually, that's, that's, that's actually not my experience. The thing that hit me this morning, the first service watching the Dr. King video, because to me this is, a, this is a really interesting parallel. Dr. King we know, of course, like, and I, because I'm a real student of King and the civil rights movement. King, in the last year or two of his life, was a miserable person. I mean, he was uh, clinically, we'd, I think we'd say now, clinically depressed. The civil rights movement was kind of in disarray. He was talking about the Vietnam War and economic uh, injustice and poverty. So some people felt like that was watering down the race message. So some people within his own movement were upset about that. It's also the same time as the rise of Malcolm X. So some people felt like he wasn't militant enough and wasn't hard enough. So it was becoming less and less popular among his own crew. There was a lot of infighting among the leadership. Everywhere he traveled, uh, the numbers were down in the rallies. Uh, people weren't coming out. Uh, it, it seemed like everybody was out to get him, and he knew that he was kind of losing momentum. And he sensed that. And people close to him saw that he was, in, like, uh, obviously, we know he was also had these kind of premonitions of his death and feeling his own kind of mortality. I mean, he's really like wrestling with a lot of things. And yet when King was killed, when King was assassinated, and because of that, in the way that God always has this way of bringing grace out of death, it's precisely through the death of King that these wonderful ideas were vindicated. And there are many, and we're a long way from 
being perfect, right? We're longer from there. But there was sweeping change that's enacted. And King is turned into a kind of martyr. So now that we have Martin Luther King Day, and look, I mean, I know that like, okay, if you're a card-carrying white supremacist, if you're like just an outright racist, then you know, like, you know, you might still hate on Martin Luther King. But for the most part, there's a pretty broad consensus that Martin Luther King did good in the world, and people generally are going to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King. But it's curious how people do that. Because what that often means is you put up a statue, you put up a monument, you have Martin Luther King Boulevard, every, Martin Luther, you have street names everywhere. And the way it often is, when we honor anybody as a kind of saint, you put up a statue so then you never have to really wrestle with anything they actually said. Well, we honored the man. We have to think about anything they actually, they actually said. And it's like Dr. King becomes a universal symbol of love and friendship. Well, who doesn't love love and friendship? Because we love Martin Luther King like we do Ronald McDonald and Golden Arches and Rainbows and Flowers and unicorns and children laughing in fields. All kinds of good and fluffy things. And yet I experiment with this almost every year on social media. I put out things that King actually said. I put out excerpts from the letter from a Birmingham jail. And when people engage things, they actually said like, oh, whew. I don't know how I feel about that. Because <laughs> the fact of the matter is, like, King really wasn't like just a bland, universal symbol of love and friendship. I mean, he was about love, but it wasn't like unity at all cost. Like, you know, the kind of conciliation, which I prefer to reconciliation, because especially in terms of race in America, we've never been, we weren't, we were never together, so we need conciliation, not reconciliation. It's <laughs> happened for the first time. You know, like, it, 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 it costs something. It costs people something. It's demanding, right? It's taxing. And there's a reason why in his day he was mostly hated. There's a reason why I, I actually saw, I don't know how they got this number, but a, a poll somewhere where, like, I think the year of his death, they, there was some sort of, like, approval poll. Like, 75% of America hated him before he died, right? I mean, like, incredibly controversial at the time. That, to me, so speaks of the way of Jesus, because I think broadly speaking, you know, like most people are going to say like, Jesus, yeah, sure, Jesus. I mean, we love Jesus. Who doesn't love Jesus? Because Jesus also can be turned into kind of whatever you want Jesus to be a mascot for. Jesus also can be a mascot for anything that's good and fluffy and, you know, unicorns and friendship and just like whatever you want, whatever you want Jesus to be. But whenever we start to wrestle with the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus, who Jesus actually was, I mean, it's, it's pretty provocative stuff. It's the reason why Simeon said, oh, this, this child, he's going to mean the rise and fall of many in Israel. That's ominous, isn't it? The rise and fall. And to speak to the mother of this baby boy and to say, a sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, those are heavy words. Those are heavy words. And what I find, interestingly enough, these days is that, okay, on the one hand, because I, I want this to be heard in the right spirit, because what I don't want you to hear is sometimes I feel like if you talk about, you know, the way that Jesus can be divisive, the way some people hear that is like, you know, yeah, 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 like, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? Like, the religious people, we got Jesus as opposed to the bad sinners out there who don't get Jesus, the God-haters, whatever. But that, that's definitely not what I mean because 
when we look at the actual life and ministry of Jesus, what do we see consistently? Like, the notoriously sinful people, they all love Jesus. Tax collectors who are seen as traitors to their own people, prostitutes, like everybody, everybody on the bottom, they love Jesus. They're drawn to him like a moth to flame. I mean, and Jesus, he's the kind of guy you invite to a wedding. Nobody knew who Jesus was when he was got invited to the wedding at Cana. He's the kind of guy you just want at a party. Like, sinful people love Jesus. It's the religious folk who, who always have the issues. And, and I find more and more when I talk about Jesus, and maybe all the more when I talk about Jesus to religious people, Jesus is actually, Jesus is actually super divisive. The way of Jesus is is still really divisive. One of the things I love about First Love Church is I feel like you guys really are trying to hold a table for everybody and make room for everybody. It's so incredibly hard to do. So hard to do. Because what I see almost everywhere is that almost all churches now, I'm speaking in generalizations. I can do that because I'm a Pentecostal preacher. We traffic in overgeneralizations. Almost all churches now fall basically down uh, the same lines as our political parties. Is your church conservative or liberal? Right? And, uh, and that becomes really, a, it, it becomes very neat and qualified in that way. So in conservative spaces, there are certain kind of folks who are just not going to be welcome. And then in progressive spaces, if you come in with the Make America Great Again hat, you're not going to be welcome. But like when you find a, a community that's actually trying to make space for everybody at the table and say, hey, it's the body and blood of Jesus that holds us together. Just whatever you think, whatever, just, just come to the table, come to the table. It, let's, let's keep this conversation open. Jesus holds us together. Jesus holds, that's really, really hard to do. And there's a reason why more people aren't trying to do it. Because it's really hard to do. The Jesus way really is still the narrow way. It's just different than we thought. Churches I grew up in, we thought for when I was young, the narrow way was like women didn't wear makeup or jewelry or go to movies. See, that's not what the narrow way is, though. Love is the narrow way. Enemy love is the narrow way. Turning the cheek, uh, turn the other cheek, blessing your enemies. Oh, that's the that that's a hard road. It's not easy. It's hard to build a church on the Sermon on the Mount. Hard to build a church on the teachings of Jesus that's going to be successful. I mean, the, the, the thesis of Jesus' ministry is given in Matthew 5. Blessing the, the poor, the poor in spirit. In, in Luke's gospel, just the poor. Blessing the peacemakers. Blessing those who, are, who mourn. Well, these are not the people who are blessed in our world. This is an uphill battle. And, and so I'm convinced in a climate like this one, man, um, to really talk about who Jesus is, who Jesus was and who Jesus is now. Oh, it's, it's divisive. It's not just the world that's divided. It's not just political parties that are divided. And I mean, that's all true, and it's all very politicized and all that. But Jesus is actually divisive. Jesus is divisive. Oh, of course he's divisive. Because he didn't let us off the hook. Jesus discerns our, our truest motives. There's, uh, Jesus always, there's always, Jesus always pushes us into uncomfortable places. Oh man, there are so many times I wish I could go back to a version of the gospel where all it is is basically just 
trying to get people to sign up to pray a one-time prayer to get their sins forgiven. And then that's it. You just fill out that card, and that's all. And instead, I feel like all I'm trying to do these days and all that's happening in my life these days is pressing more further and further into this very uncomfortable way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is always uncomfortable. It's always stretching. It's always challenging. If you're here this morning, and if you're part of this community or any other where you're being stretched and challenged, and that makes you think, am I in the right place? That my mind's always being stretched and always around people being challenged? Please understand, that's not, that's not, what, the, that's not what it looks like. That's not what the, the devil looks like. That's the Holy Spirit. Being stressed and challenged constantly is the way of Jesus. If the sword is piercing your own heart, that's the way of Jesus. My friend and mentor, Dr. Ricky Moore, Old Testament professor, somebody asked him once, how do you know the voice of God? He said, you know the voice of God because it's the voice that always breaks your heart. It goes crossways against your own heart. Man, there's something that rings true to me about that. There's something heartbreaking about the voice of God. There's something about that voice. Of, there's something about the voice of Jesus. There's something about the tenderness of Jesus that will pierce your soul. And it's uncomfortable. It will mean rising, but it will also mean falling. But here's the thing. I don't know if this seems like good news or not. But you know that Malachi text talked about how when the consolation comes, when the comfort comes, that we know that is manifest fully in Jesus the Christ. It talks, it gives us that image of a refining fire. The refiner's fire. That's, I'm thinking about those kind of images a lot in scripture these days, because you know, there really is a lot in the text. There's a lot in the Bible about, about fire. There's a lot of imagery about fire. But, you know, I've shifted because I'm really, when I tell stories and say things about where I grew up, I'm not trying to make fun of anything. I mean, so much of that is in me and so much of it has been good. But I just, the way I came up, the only understanding I had about the fire of God was hellfire. And that was fire of judgment understood in one way. It was, it was a fire of judgment that was all about destruction. It was a fire that was about retribution. And the more and more I get to know about God, and by the way, I'm not just riffing here. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this expressly, about how everybody will pass through the fire, how everybody's work will be tested by the fire. And he has, this is not some new age hippie in California. I'm quoting the Apostle Paul here. He actually says that some will be saved only through fire. The fire is what saves. Imagine that. And I've really come to believe that there has to be a difference between God's fire, God's kind of fire, and my kind of fire. Because what my kind of fire looks like is that, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think I'm mostly a nice person. I don't think I'm prone generally to rage. But, you know, I have my moments. And I can pray for terrorists to accept the love of Jesus and be transformed. And then I get cut off in traffic and I'm like, am condemning people to the seventh level of hell. 
I'm getting off an airplane and somebody doesn't follow the like row by row rule and gets in front of me and it's like, oh no, like there is no redemption for them. They've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Their sins will not be forgiven. It's like, so like the slightest of personal offense or something, you know, like whatever. The point is, my kind of fire is destructive. My kind of fire would burn people up. My kind of fire is destructive. But see, that's not what God's fire is like. God's fire is a refining fire. God's fire is a purifying fire. I used to read like in the Psalms when David would pray things like asking God to search him and know him and try and see if there's any kind of wicked way. And I'm like, why on earth would you pray something like that? Because I want to be like, Lord, if you could just like look some things over, if you could just maybe gloss over some stuff, I'd really appreciate it. Maybe just do a drive by here. But no, David says, try me, search me, know me. Why? Because the fire of God is not a thing to be afraid of. It's like the burning bush, you know, where, where it's like it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't destroy. The bush is never like fully consumed. It doesn't, the fire of God is not destructive. The fire of God refines and purifies. That's the reason why I'm trying to get to a place in my life of welcoming the discomfort, of welcoming the ambiguity, of welcoming the hard questions that keep me up at night, of welcoming the uncertainty, of welcoming the sword that pierces my own soul. Because I know that that same sword that pierces my soul is somehow the, the sword that touches me and brings me healing. I know that fire that God brings is not going to burn me to a crisp. It's going to refine me. It's going to make all things well. It's going to make all things right. I want to welcome that fire. If we understand what the judgment of God is really like and what it's really about, that God's judgment is never about retribution and people getting what they deserve, but about restoration and making things right, then we get to a place where we can actually welcome the judgment of God. Because what does God, what does God ever do for us that's not going to be for our healing? If something is in, is in darkness that God brings into the light, what, what is it for? Never for any other reason except to heal us. Not to embarrass, not to shame. That's not who God is. It's always about healing and about restoration. I know I say, I'm saying a lot of things, but I really want to land just simply saying this. I just want to offer encouragement this morning. First of all, to say that Jesus, the one who brings consolation and comfort, is also a divider, <laughs> divisive, difficult, cantankerous, troublesome. He's a troublemaker, y'all. Can somebody just say amen? He's a troublemaker. And don't you know, anybody who knows Jesus, I'm convinced this, anybody who's known Jesus for a while knows he likes to make mischief. And the really holy people have mischief in their eyes. You know it. They've got that twinkle. Like God is about mischief. God loves to make you uncomfortable. God loves to stretch. You know that he does. You know that he does. And you know that when God speaks, there's a playfulness to it. You know it. You know that God loves to punk you. I know. I think I preached on the road to Emmaus here. You know, Jesus walking with the, those two disciples and just totally playing them. Like they don't recognize he's Jesus. And they're trying to tell him about the... Uh, how Jesus has been tortured and crucified. Oh, really? 
please tell me more about this. You know, Jesus is having a ball with this. Oh, he's playful. He's mischievous, right? I mean, that is just, that's just who God is. He'll, he'll bring all kinds of trouble and he will bring that kind of refining fire. Oh, but the fire, it doesn't burn us up. It transfigures us. It transfigures us. I believe that about the fire of God now. That the, the fire of God comes to transfigure the world. The flames of, you've got the imagery in, on the day of Pentecost. The, the flames of Pentecost resting on every head. Oh, the fire of God transfigures and transforms and purifies. So wherever right now you're being stretched, wherever right now you're being challenged, wherever you're uncomfortable, wherever the church is making you uncomfortable, whatever questions are tearing at your soul, instead of assuming that that's not of God, instead of rebuking the devil, I want to just invite you to entertain the idea that this is exactly how God works. <laughs> this is exi- refining fire, purifying fire, but we don't have to be afraid of the purifying fire that comes from Jesus because his fire does not destroy, it only restores. Stand with me if you would. The sword will pierce your own soul too. God, we want to trust you this morning. You know, we, um, we come into this space today with all kinds of wounds. And some of those wounds have been inflicted on us in horrible ways, abusive ways. Ways that j- just, are re- just are really unredemptive, harmful. But there's that different kind of wound when you pierce our souls. There's that different kind of faithful wound that you give us that makes us more tender, that breaks us open to the pain and suffering of people around us, that makes us more awake and aware of what's really happening in the world. I just want to linger there for just a moment. I'm not going to do this for a long time, but you know what? That's just my sense this morning. Some of the things right now that for some of you are breaking you down, you know these are the very things that God is using to break you open. And the stuff that's so painful and so hurtful, the relationships that just won't seem to mend, and the problem that just won't seem to resolve, you know what that's doing. It's keeping your heart open. It's keeping your heart soft and tender. It's making you more open to God and others. And I'm not saying that that means that God is necessarily causing all that to teach you a lesson. It's not like that. But there's nothing God can't use. There's a way that God will pierce our own soul that is for our good. Because we need our, our souls to stay open and tender. And God, this morning, we need your purifying fire. We need to be refined. We need our motives to be refined. So I just pray this morning that you would give us the grace. I feel like so many of us, you know, and it makes me so sad. So many people have been taught that you're a monster. 
So many people have been taught that you're a child abuser. So many people have been taught that you're cruel and that you're mean. That you hurt for the sake of hurting and that you take delight in our pain. God, I know that's not who you are. And I just pray that there'd be a revelation of your character so that we would come to trust. That when your fire comes, when your fire comes, it might singe us sometimes. It might be uncomfortable sometimes. Oh, but God, your fire always transfigures us. Your fire does not destroy. It transforms. Your fire makes us better. Your fire makes us more loving. Your fire makes us more generous. Your fire makes everything better. Your fire makes the world into what it's intended to be and makes our lives into what it's intended to be. So Jesus, I just have this image right now. I don't know if this seems silly or weird, but I'm thinking about the old man prophet Simeon holding Jesus. And I just want to invite you this morning (laughs) in your own way. Are you willing to just to hold Jesus in your arms this morning? Knowing that to hold Jesus means that you're holding on to rising and falling. You're holding on to comfort and to affliction. You're holding on to the one who will love you to the bitter end and will never leave you or forsake you. And you're also holding on to the one who's never going to stop stretching you and never stop challenging you. Oh, but let's cling to him. Let's hold him. Let's hold on to that blessing. Even though it will also involve some wrestling, let's hold on to that Jesus who always holds on to us. Let's trust that in holding that Jesus and blessing that Jesus like Simeon did, that we trust that even the fire that that Jesus brings, oh, it only brings good. It only brings reconciliation. It only brings healing. So even in the discomfort, Jesus, we welcome you. (laughs) In discomfort and in consolation, we welcome you to meet us here now.